This is not a tribunal to see whether you are saved or lost. One second after you die, it's already been determined. By the choice of what you did with Jesus. Listen, he's not just another miracle worker. He's not just another prophet. He claims to be God in human flesh. And he said, there's no way to the Father but through him. And so what you do with Jesus will determine what God does with you. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Yesterday, Pastor Carl showed us that the judgment seat of Christ is a place of revelation. And one day, by God's grace, we will also see that the judgment seat of Christ is also a place of great reward. God will reward his saints accordingly. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each one of us has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This verse is reminding us that each one of us will one day give an account to God as stewards for the things that we have done and attempted to do in this world. Please join us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 as we continue. Now here's a picture of a Bema. This is an artist's rendition to Jesus standing before the Bema of Pilate. Pilate, we're told, is at the Bema toss. He's at the judgment seat. And there, of course, the Bema is to mete out punishment. Uh, the Apostle Paul, some of you went with me in a tour we did many years ago called the Footsteps of Paul, and we went to Corinth, and we saw almost an identical Bema from the first century, the very one that Paul stood before when he was there in Acts 18. Again, it's a place of evaluation. It's also used, the Bema, as a place of rewards. For instance, judges would stand on the Bema toss during the Isthmian Games, and you might have two athletes that would compete, and they would be given rewards accordingly. And so one would receive a, um, a reward of the perishable green coveted wreath, and the one who lost the race, well, his head wasn't cut off. He just didn't receive a reward. And so this is not a tribunal to see whether you are saved or lost. One second after you die, it's already been determined. By the choice of what you did with Jesus. Listen, he's not just another miracle worker. He's not just another prophet. He claims to be God in human flesh. And he said, there's no way to the Father but through him. And so what you do with Jesus will determine what God does with you. But it's possible at the Bema toss to have invested your life as a believer in a way that was wasteful. And so it's going to be judged. It's going to be evaluated. Your service, your stewardship, the works done in the body are going to be evaluated as good or bad. Now, I recognize if you read the context of 1 Corinthians 3 carefully, He's dealing primarily with pastors. He's talking about different pastors who come into different cities, who uh, lay a foundation through the preaching of the gospel, and then what kind of material they are using to build God's church. And sadly, there's a lot of pastors who use the wrong kind of materials. And Paul's admonition is, unless you're using the Bible, the Word of God, as central to the building material, it's worthless. And sadly, we live in a day where worthless churches are overflowing 
because the pastor gets up there and he's entertaining. He's entertaining the goats. He's not feeding the sheep. And sadly, he is not teaching the word of God, which is absolutely essential. Now, again, while the context is revealing a revelation to pastors, the application extends to all Christians in light of what we just read in 2 Corinthians 5 and in light of what Paul says in Romans 14, 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, notice, if you will, verse 10 for just a moment, verse 10. He said, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Now, if you remember from the Acts of the Apostles, Paul was the very first one to preach to the Corinthians. He laid the foundation through the preaching of the gospel. He's already stated in 1 Corinthians 2 to the Corinthians that he preached nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So God used him to lay the foundation. The foundation is laid through the proclamation of the gospel. Understand that the foundation is critical. The foundation of a building determines its shape, its strength, its superstructure, all that is put upon it. In someone's life and ministry, if they are building on the wrong foundation, is useless. And if they are building on the foundation, which is Christ, understand the foundation, the rock is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. The church is not built on some pope. It's built on the Lord Jesus. He is the foundation. But if you use the wrong kinds of materials, either as a pastor or as a Christian, then you're not going to build the kind of house God wants you to build. I've been in ministry now for nearly 45 years of full-time ministry. I've seen a lot of famous pastors, some come and go, and different methodologies and techniques and church growth uh, improvisions that we should supposedly use in the church. And many of those ministries have collapsed. So Paul is saying, pastor, Christian, serve the Lord in a way that's pleasing to him. Have as your ambition to build on the foundation, but make sure you use gold, silver, precious stone kind of material and not wood, hay, and stubble kind of material. And by the way, the building that he is building is the local church. And that's where God's emphasis is in Scripture. Nothing wrong with being involved in a parachurch. But if all your uh, involvement is out there somewhere with the parachurch, you've put your focus on the wrong thing. The primary point of evaluation that God will give is how you serve in the local assembly, how you serve in the local church. So again, the foundation is Christ. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is Jesus Christ. And so this is one of three figures that God uses to describe a coming future evaluation. And the first figure concerns a building. Now notice verse 12. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw... And some believers are using gold, silver, and precious stones. And they are doing a magnificent work for Christ. And they are helping to build a magnificent temple. The others, they're using gold, hay, uh, and stubble, which are cheap, which are temporary. 
that are combustible when tested with fire. Now he adds in verse 13, each man's work will become evident for the day, this day of evaluation. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So gold, silver, precious stones, they picture something that is permanent, wood, hand, stubble, something that is temporary. And all of these works that we do fall into one of those two categories, and we will know what sort they are when God tests them with fire. God will test the quality of each man's work. So the day is coming when God will look at your work, especially that service done in relationship to the local assembly, and he will look at how you serve. The fire will test the quality. You say, well, I'm interested in quantity. Well, you should be. But you need to be interested in far more in quantity. You need to be interested in quality. The King James says, what sort? The Net Bible, the Young's Literal Translation says, what kind? And so, what would you rather have? A truckload of hay or a handful of diamonds? I don't know about you. I'd rather have a handful of diamonds. In fact, I'd rather have a bucket of diamonds. (laughs) But listen. Quality is critically important in this evaluation because God is going to evaluate the eternal value of your service. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 5. There he writes, and also if anyone competes, and again, this is one of three analogies that describe the future judgment, that of a race. And if anyone competes in the race, he does not win the prize unless... He competes according to the rules. You have to play according to the rules. And so God will describe sometimes this coming judgment as an athletic contest. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, who had been saved for 25 years, writes this. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So they do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So if you break the rules, if you don't do it God's way, you won't receive a reward. Now, Paul, if you remember the context, says, I don't want to be disqualified from the ministry. Saved for 25 years. A great apostle. I don't want to be disqualified. I want to run the race well all the way to the very end, which he's able to say in his final epistle in the New Testament. But Paul recognized that what men were doing in the race of life was simply for something that was perishable. But believers, we are seeking after something that is imperishable. So we might ask, well, what are the criteria by which God evaluates our works, be they good or worthless? What are the standards that would make some of those works, gold, silver, and precious stones, and other works, nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble? Well, I'm glad you've asked that question. So let's think our way through it very, very critically. There are at least three critical aspects by which God will evaluate our works. First of all, he will evaluate what you do. He will evaluate what you do. Do you think it will make a difference in eternity when two saved people, side by side, one serves consistently and faithfully, and the other does not? One uh, is here, 
to honor the Lord's day, the first day of the week, because God commands us to do that. He gathers with the saints on Sunday. You might not be able to come to a Thursday night or Wednesday night meeting, but Sunday is when God's people are called to gather. Uh, That person uses his spiritual gifts. Each one of you has been given a spiritual gift. If you don't know what that is, you might consider the spiritual gifts inventory. I wrote it myself. I did my doctoral dissertation on spiritual gifts, and it's 128 questions, and it might help you to see what of those 20 spiritual gifts in the New Testament you have. Uh, Are you using your spiritual gifts? We're commanded to employ our spiritual gifts as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Another brother, he gives 10% of his income to the Lord. He, he teaches the word of God when God gives him opportunity, maybe not in a formal way, but in the general sense in which all Christians, as they mature in Christ, are called to do, Hebrews 5. He's a person who intercedes for the church, prays for its activities, prays for its missionaries, prays for its outreaches. And then you have another Christian. Well, he, he, he comes when it's convenient. It doesn't interfere with his schedule too much. He doesn't really come to serve. He just comes to receive. He's never really earnestly prayed for anything in the life of the church. He doesn't tithe. He's not involved in reaching out and trying to win people for Jesus. That demands self-denial. It demands discipline. It demands hard work. He rarely, if ever, serves question. Both are saved by the grace of God. Will it make a difference in eternity? You better believe it will. There'll be a clear difference. God would not be just if he didn't reward his saints accordingly. God's word teaches plainly in 1 Peter 4.10 that each one of us will give an account as stewards. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul exhorts the church there to make the most of their time. Why? Because the days are evil. And contextually, he says the way you make the most of your time is to learn the word of God and to be filled with the spirit. So listen, if you're consumed with yourself and your stuff, and your hobbies, and your TV, and your social media sites, and you're just wasting your time, it will make a difference in eternity. So God, among other things, will look at what you do. Secondly, the New Testament teaches God will look at even what you attempted to do. When God judges you, he will not simply judge you for what you do. He will also judge us for what we attempted to do. Do you remember when Solomon dedicated the temple as recorded in 1 Kings 8? And he gave his father the credit for the idea and even the gathering of all the materials and his desire to build that temple. Let me read to you from 1 Kings 8, verses 17 and 18. Solomon tells us, Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house, the temple, For the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Which reminds me that God simply doesn't look at what you've done. He looks at what you've attempted to do. And there are many examples we could look at. I think of those five missionaries who graduated from Wheaton College at a time when it was still Bible-believing. They've gone south. Sadly, I wouldn't send my dog there. By the way, we are witnessing 
what God said would happen at the end of time, this apostasy, this falling away from the faith. But those men, Jim Elliott, most of you know him, his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and they spent their life preparing and praying to go and reach the Aka Indians with the gospel. And finally, through the course of time, as they make an attempt after several days, all five missionaries are slaughtered. Do you think at the judgment of the just, the Lord Jesus will say, no reward for you. You didn't reach any of the Aka. In fact, what they did laid the foundation for Elizabeth and others who came in behind. And to this day, because of what they did, there's an indigenous church that is preaching and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a new Christian, we sang a hymn that we don't really sing much anymore, but it's a very poignant hymn. Let me read one stanza. Must I go empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? Now, we have people assembled here in Grays, in Graniteville, and most Sundays, people listening all across the country and all around the world. I just wonder how many of us are attempting to win someone to Jesus. In the last service, we had a couple come down, and Walter and Devin reached out to their new neighbors, and they had never been to our church before until Thursday night, came to meet the pastor. They both received Christ as their Lord and Savior, came down front this morning and confessed it and said they want to be baptized as new believers and to join this church. Praise God. Now, I don't think God will look at you in the judgment and say, shame on you because you didn't win a single person to Jesus. Though I do think because he has commissioned us to go and bear fruit, and the fruit he is referring to contextually in John 15 is not simply the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of a conversion. And if you will consistently, earnestly, faithfully attempt to reach out to people, whether it's inviting them to church, sharing your testimony, sharing the plan of salvation, sooner or later you'll see someone come to the kingdom. I don't think God will say, though, shame on you because you didn't win anyone to Jesus. But he might say, shame on you, and that it wasn't even in your heart to win someone to Jesus. And so God, in evaluating the quality, he looks at what you do. He also looks at what you attempted to do. Third, jot this down, he looks at why you did it. Now, remember in the context, the apostle Paul has been contrasting the natural man, the unsaved man, with the supernatural spirit-filled believer, the carnal believer, with the one who walks in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the person who walks in the power of the Holy Spirit serves the Lord not in his strength, but in God's strength. Whereas the person who is walking in his own fleshly desires, he typically serves for self for the praise of men, for the pat on the back, but not for the living God. Now understand there's a lot of people who do work for the kingdom and they work hard and as this judgment will reveal someday, it doesn't mean much to the Lord. They give, but God's not pleased with their giving. They sing, but God is not pleased with their singing. They pray, but their prayers are not answered. You know, it's possible to pray, but not pray. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. 
They think, I'm doing this all for the living God. But God is not pleased because their motivation is wrong. Listen to these words in chapter 4 and verse 5. If you turn over to the next page or look across the page, Paul says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will, bring both to, who, will bring, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. So God is looking at motive, why you did what you did. Later on in chapter 9, Paul will make a profound statement. In chapter 9 and verse 16, he said, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. The apostle Paul was not only a believer, and we've all been commissioned to preach the gospel, but he was a called apostle, he was a called pastor, he was a called man of God, a called preacher. And Paul is saying, I can't get out of this. God has called me to preach. I am under compulsion to preach the gospel. And I know how he, is, how he felt. I, I can't imagine myself doing anything else and being a pastor than being a preacher. And when I think about it, my, my, my mind just comes back to what God has called me to do. And as long as I, as, I, as I have physical strength and the acuity of mind, I will do it by the grace of God until the day he takes me home. Now, there are times when I want to quit. <laughs> More than one Monday, I've quit. And before the end of the day, I've rehired myself. <laughs> but listen, I can't think of doing anything but preaching the gospel. I'm under compulsion. But look at the next verse. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a commission, nonetheless. Paul is telling us that the unwilling servant does not get a reward. Those of you who sang in the choir this morning, those of you ushering, those of you teaching children, teaching adults, serving in the nursery, why are you doing it? Well, I tithe because the Bible commands me, say, to tithe. God neither needs nor wants your tithe like he is bankrupt. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. God loves a cheerful giver. He looks at attitude. We're not to be like those Pharisees, those religious men, who literally had someone sound a little trumpet, to introduce their giving to those large containers outside of the temple. Jesus said they did it to be noticed by men. And then he said, truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. When you do things for the praise of men, that's the reward you'll get, the praise of men. So God looks at what we do. God looks at what we attempted to do. And God looks at why we did it. Listen to these words in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Those of you who will help keep missionaries at the coming mission conference this fall, those of you who help pastors, who serve men of God who are called in the ministry, God looks at that. You will receive a prophet's reward. It's a magnificent promise. Now listen to verse 42. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, 
he shall not lose his reward. Now he's not talking about the preacher. Now he's not talking about the missionary. Here we are this morning in this beautifully climate-controlled building where it's a cooker outside. We're in a house of worship. It's peaceful. It's quiet. You don't hear any of the kids screaming, do you? Why? Because next door in the nursery, some of those people are tirelessly not just teaching some children, but entertaining others to keep them happy so your number won't have to come up here. Anthony Vaughn, some years ago, gave me a sign to put in the nursery. It said it all. It was from 1 Corinthians 15, 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> Listen, even a cup of cold water, God sees it. When you walk down these hallways today and you greet someone you've never met, when you give a hug to a believer who needs it or a handshake, God sees it all. Whether you're a Billy Graham or a nursery worker, God will evaluate all that we've done and he will reward us for it. But God is looking at motivation. God is looking at what we've done and what we've attempted to do. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is a place of revelation. That's the first point. Are you tracking with me? Say amen. All right, secondly, the judgment seat of Christ is a place of reward. Not only is it a place of revelation, it is a place of reward. Let's continue further here in 1 Corinthians 3 in verse 13. He says, each man's work will become evident for the day, the the evaluation day. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. But then God promises in verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it, that is the foundation remains, he will receive a reward. Now some Christian people in their ignorance do not believe in heavenly rewards. They are under the impression that heaven is the same for everyone. But clearly the Bible teaches there are degrees of reward in heaven. Paul has already said in chapter 3 here and in verse 8 that each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. You cannot receive my reward. I cannot receive your reward. Each of us will receive our own reward. At the end of the Bible, Jesus said in Revelation twenty-two twelve, 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And so he says then in the final recorded words spoken of Jesus, yes, I am coming quickly. He's speaking to the elder this morning. He's speaking to the deacon. He's speaking to the staff member. He's speaking to all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Behold, he's trying to get our attention. I'm coming quickly, meaning suddenly, in a moment's time, and I'm going to render to every man according to what he has done. We'll see this before we're done at the judgment of the lost, and it is also true at the judgment of the saved. Join us next week for part three and the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon on the judgment of the just. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 009. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. 
You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.